So I was told you later on a class on the spheres. Yeah. Okay. Why? Because. I don't know one yet. <laughs> well, apparently you got outvoted. Yeah, I... Don't I... <laughs> there'll be plenty of time here. No, I'm, I'm serious, why? I feel like they come up a lot in our classes, and I don't fully understand them. Like, okay. They come up in your classes, and you don't understand them. Okay, that is a good reason to have a class on something. Mm-hmm. No, I'm, I'm not kidding, because if you don't know why you're learning about something, you don't necessarily know what information is going to be useful, and information is not going to be useful. Um, so we're going to try to go through this. Um, orderly. Okay. Number one, we will talk about what spheres are. Number two, we will talk about the proper translations of the names of the spheres. Okay. Number three, um, we will talk about the relationship between the spheres and the faculties of the soul. Okay? Okay. There is an area of Torah called Kabbalah. Um, Kabbalah usually gets treated as like a a code name for just Jewish mysticism, um, but it actually is something a little bit more specific. Um, There are in fact different streams of Kabbalah. One stream of Kabbalah is the idea of the ten spheros. So, the ten spheros first gets mentioned in a work called the Sefer Yetzirah, the work of creation, which is a work that's attributed to as far back at least as the times of the Mishnah, so we're talking almost a thousand years ago, and there are other traditions that it goes back at least in some way to Avraham. Okay, so how those get reconciled is a discussion for another time. And there is mention of ten spheres. It is very cryptic. It doesn't tell you what they are. There are different commentaries on it. In the Middle Ages, we find um, that certain um, Jewish scholars engaging in a form of mysticism that very heavily develops this idea of the ten spheres. Um, this is in southern France initially and in Spain. Um, and again, they're, they're, so it, and this becomes very central um, to Kabbalah. Eventually, other ideas of Kabbalah get mixed in. So um, you have Kabbalah, the Kabbalistic works that didn't really talk about the ten spheres quite explicitly, but this becomes a, a major idea. And what's important about this is that the Ten spheres are taken as a mystical thing on the one hand, but also to have some sort of philosophical side on the other hand. In other words, the mystical tradition in Judaism is that aside from simply keeping Torah and mitzvahs and striving to be an ethical person, one should strive to have some sort of actual experience or encounter with God. Okay, so in that sense, prophecy would be like the ultimate mystical goal. 
Okay. So not everything that's of a mystical nature is actually relevant to someone who's not going to work on cultivating that kind of experience. So there were, there, there were traditions about certain acts of piety above and beyond the letter of the law and halacha to refine a person. There were mystical practices involving meditations to help bring a person to kind of prophetic or semi-prophetic states. But this idea of the ten spheros, while it was part of a mystical tradition, it also had a philosophical thing. It was, it was an idea that was meant to help answer certain questions um, in Jewish theology. Okay? And so it's in that light that we're going to talk about what spheros are. Okay? So in other words, I'm not going to discuss the role spheros play, at least right now, in your mystical communion with God but rather if you are asking theological and philosophical questions, what role do spheres play? Um, so the first thing that I think it's important for me to be honest about, there are actually different views amongst the Kabbalists about spheres. Um, and so if I can't go through everything, I'm going to give more or less... Uh, a synthesized version, but if you actually want to study this in any great depth, you should realize that everything I'm saying is a gross oversimplification, and there are actually many disputes about the matter. Okay. So number one, we'll start with a basic question. In Judaism, there is a fundamental belief in reward and punishment. God rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked. There is also a fundamental belief that God is a simple, indivisible unity. God does not have different parts. This creates a question. How does God reward the righteous and punish the wicked? Because if God is simple, and unchanging, then God is simply doing the same thing all the time. Whatever God is doing, he's just doing his God thing. And what causes the righteous to be rewarded and the wicked to be punished is not attributable to God. Um, I'm going to give you an analogy. This is an analogy that was used by Jewish philosophers who are not Kabbalists to explain how the same God doesn't have to change and produces different effects on the world. Fire both heats wax and melts it, and heats clay and hardens it. And we would not say that the fire is doing different things. It is not doing one thing to the wax and a different thing to the clay. It is doing the same thing. It's just being hot and radiating its heat. But because the wax is wax and the clay is clay, they react differently. And so in this sense, God just bestows the divine truth upon reality. And in that sense, it's not like a fire. God God is volitional. God does not have a fixed, you know, inanimate nature. But Nonetheless, he just bestows the divine truth upon reality. And if you are righteous, that divine truth affects you in a way that ultimately is positive and furthers your ongoing survival and well-being and ennobles your existence, etc., etc., etc. And if you are wicked, then the divine truth has the opposite effect. It curtails your existence, causes you to suffer, etc., etc. And you have the choice whether to be righteous or wicked. The problem with this is now God is not actually, the notion of reward and punishment is not being attributed to God. 
right? There's, there's a, there, there, God is not really engaging in the act of reward and the act of punishment. And the, that's one question. You have another question, which is, um, God knows what we are doing. That's another fundamental belief in Judaism. And there are many different creations and each creation um, is distinct in its nature. Each creation um, changes throughout the course of its existence, right? Like us, we're, we're born, we grow older, then we die, right? And to, and to say that God knows of us would be to indicate, would be to imply that somehow God possesses many objects of knowledge that are changing. And how is that consistent with this simple unity? And there are Jewish philosophers who deal with that as well. And they would say things, for instance, like God does not really know in the sense that we talk about. God does not really possess knowledge in the sense that we do. Um, it's, 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 the terminology has to be understood in more borrowed ways and other ways. Um, for instance, that if you lack knowledge, you cannot behave um, um, effectively. Right? If I don't know where the garbage can is, I can't throw the thing into the garbage. So knowledge is a prerequisite for effective action. But if God's actions are inherently perfect, it is so to speak as if he knows everything. But it's not like he actually has knowledge. So the ways that Jews have, have dealt with this, um, but what that ends up happening is that th- these, these, these things that we think about in terms of God, we end up removing from God. In other words, in preserving God's unity, what we do is we compromise his theistic quality, the fact that he actually is engaged with reality. Okay? And then, of course, you have the anthropomorphism that you read the Chumash, and, and to, to a different sense, also when you read the sages, we'll focus on the Chumash, on the, on, on the written text of the, of the Tanakh, you find God being described as a human being. And so again, you have to deal with that, and, and many Jewish philosophers have dealt with that as well. And broadly speaking, the approach to that is we change the meanings of those words or the context in which those descriptions are given um, to preserve this idea of God's simple unity. So we're preserving unity at the expense of his providence, his engagement, his, so to speak, involvement with the world. Now, just as, as a side point, if you are a mystic, you can see why that would be problematic. Does everyone see why that would be problematic if you're a mystic? What's, what's the goal of a mystic? What, what's problematic with a mystic? That if you're, if you're, the way you preserve a sense of God's simple unity is to make him more remote, right? It's not, God is not rewarding and punishing God, just bestowing his divine truth. God doesn't really know the individual creations as they well, are. Because then you can't relate to God on a person. Like, also, like a mystic wouldn't be able to like have prophecy or something. Right, so, right. so what that does is it means that God become God is become something that exists outside the realm of the human experience. Mm-hmm. And if God exists outside the realm of the human experience, then any notion in any way, shape, or form of a mystical experience is just impossible. And then you would explain prophecy as something else. And again, many Jewish philosophers do. Many Jewish philosophers do not explain prophecy as actually encountering divinity, actually encountering godliness. They understand it as a kind of um, form of 
gaining knowledge from angelic beings, but you're not actually encountering God. And so, yes, you're gaining a knowledge which transcends normal human reasoning, but you're not actually encountering God. So for mystics, this is a problem. Okay. I want to stop at this point. Everyone is with me. So we're, we're clear on what the issue is before we get into the spheres. Wait, the answer that, wait, the question was that how is it? God would be involved in everything, like every little thing, and the answer was that he's not? Yeah. The the classic answer outside of Kabbalah is that he's not. Mm -hmm. That there is a causal relationship with everything that ultimately goes back to God. But if you were to ask, like, like, you know, what is God's relationship with this cup of water? The answer is, like, I mean, in some very remote sense, the cup of water ultimately exists because of God, but God has no like direct engagement with the cup of water. And if I want to become more knowledgeable about God, I probably should stop focusing so much on the cup of water. And if you start applying that to the structure of reality at large, you can get to the kind of thing that made the Jewish philosopher says that the ultimate knowledge of God is to know that you cannot know. And, and, and uh, you know, so God is not, you know, the, the rewarding and punishing is, is not, re- it's ultimately based on God, but at the end of the day, right, the wax is melting, not because of the fire per se, but because also of the nature of the wax, right? The, the fire is kind of aloof from that, removed remove from that, right? If I examine the melting of the wax, I can't sense how that melting quality somehow stems from the fire. It doesn't. It's caused by the fire. It depends on the fire, but it's not in the fire, and so nothing of the created reality can be a medium through which to encounter God. So the mystic is very bothered by this. Um, and it also means that, and this is probably the thing that was bothering you more, is that the more you think about this, it becomes hard for, the, for most people to, to reconcile God as really running the world and engaging in a kind of a providential relationship with the world if God is so remote. The, 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 the kind of being of God just has this categorical jump between, there's nothing, there's no point of commonality between God and the world at all, that it just, it becomes almost a matter of blind faith to some people that God is actually in charge. And so both for the mystics themselves and also for the sense that there should be some kind of more rigorous, coherent sense that God is really responsible for it and punishment. God really does know what we are doing. Um, God really is, Involved and that the, the Torah's descriptions of God are not just, you know, <coughs> metaphoric language or don't mean what they seem to mean. There has to be some way of dealing with that. And, and the way of dealing with that is this idea of the ten spheros. Now, I want to be clear. The mystics are not claiming they came up with this idea in order to solve these problems. The mystics talk about these ideas because they solve this problem, but their knowledge of this comes from mysticism. It comes from the experience. In other words, it's... Nobody sat there and philosophized up the idea of the ten spheros. People, the mystics had mystical encounters, and then at a certain point they tried to articulate them, and the first articulation that we have is in the Sefer Yetzirah. And in the medieval times, in, in, in southern France and in Spain, we start to see more actual engagements really trying to articulate what's going on here. And it actually starts to board in the realm of like real philosophy and make philosophical arguments and analogies and things like that. Okay, so what are the spheres and how do they solve the problem? So, spheres are the intermediary between God and the created world. That's in a nutshell. 
So are the spheres God? No. no. Are the spheres the created world? No. no. So I'm going to say this in a way that's, that's not very rigorous, but, it, but it, it makes the point clear. Descriptions of the spheres can legitimately be called, can literally be, be understood as describing God because they're not part of the created world. They're, they're playing, they are, they are on God's side of the equation. We make a dividing line between the, that which is part of the created world and that which is in the godly realm. Where are the spheros? The godly realm. So when you, it's, it's legitimate in some sense to describe the spheros as God. On the other hand, the spheros aren't God, right? Mm-hmm. So the issues that go along with describing God and attributing multiplicity in God and description in God, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that gets solved by saying that really they're not God. Now, I haven't really explained very much, but, I, but this is why spheros are hard. So when it says, for instance, um, God got angry, what would the Kabbalists say? That's a description of spheros. And it's fair to call it, say, God, because it's not part of the created reality. It's fair to call, say, get angry, because it's not actually God himself. Problem solved. And everyone's scratching their head thinking, um, I don't see how that really solves the problem. Okay, and this is, it, it, it's once you actually start trying to articulate that conceptually and explain that, that things will start to get very, very messy. Okay. The... There are a few different ways of understanding the spheros. I'm going to briefly sum, briefly state them, um, but then only talk about one. Okay, one way of understanding the spheros is that the spheros are somehow um, revealing that something that was hidden within God. Okay, so the the term in the Kabbalah is that when we talk about God himself, we call God Ein Sof, or he who is no end. And the spheros come forth out of the Ein Sof. What would be an analogy for this idea? So if you think of a coal, and the coal is burning, if you blow on the coal, what happens? A flame arises. Now, was there any flame in the coal? Well, in one sense, yes, and in one sense, no, the flame that comes out is not an, it's, 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 it's just revealing the burning of the coal inside. And yet the actual shape and color and light of the flame only really takes on existence as the flame exists outside the coal. So the idea is that the spheros are somehow a, um, a revelation, a projection of something that, w- that is in some sense within the Ainsof, within God, but when it's externalized, it takes on this more limited form. And so if I were to say that the flame is flickering, for example, that makes sense. But I wouldn't say that the, the, the burning in the coal is flickering because flickering doesn't, on that, when it's actually, the, when, the, when the fire in the, in the, is, is actually in the coal itself, there's no flickering happening. But when that same combustion is, is made manifest outside of the coal, there is flickering. And I would say that the flame is bright, but I wouldn't say that the, the burning inside the coal is bright. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's one way, that's one, and, and, and that idea um, is found actually, if I remember correctly, all the way back in the Sefer Yetzirah, that idea is, I believe, mentioned. Um, and then you have another idea, which is that the, 
the spheros are like the fingers of a person. So, um, when you are doing something, as many of you right now are writing, right? Your will is to write down certain words, right? Your intention is to write down words as part of your notes. And that intention to write down the words is, is a completely you know, um, psychological experience. It has no physical reality. But your fingers move in ways that bring that about an actualization. So the fingers are not part of you. They're somehow part of your will. They're somehow external to it. But they are the tools of your will. And what makes your fingers special is that they react to your will automatically, right? The pen, you don't, if, you have a, if you have a decision that you want to write down certain sentences, the pen doesn't just get up and start writing on its own. But your fingers do. So the fingers have this deep receptivity to your will. But they are not actually your will. They weren't part of your will. They're something external. But in as much as they're very receptive, that they're very obedient, almost on this deep intuitive level, we don't even think of our fingers as something other than ourselves, even though it's not really the soul. And that's another way of explaining the spheres. Now, notice that those two ideas are not the same. Okay? And the, the, the standard understanding, though, is that both of these views are correct, that there is in some sense some aspect of the spheres which is revealing something will that of the Ein Sof, something of the truth of God himself. And there is some sense in which the spheros are vessels or tools to fulfill his will. And so this is an idea that you may have encountered in Chosidus that the spheros have lights and vessels. You've ever encountered this idea before? So when we speak about the light of the spheros, we speak about that of the spheros, which is a propagation, a revelation, an emanation of the Ein Sof. And think of, if you want the analogy, think about the way the flame relates to the burning of the coal. And we also have the idea that the spheres have this notion of a vessel. And in that sense, the spheres would be like the fingers to your will. And then what becomes very complicated is understanding how these ideas kind of coalesce and form together. And the way to think about this is that the spheres, the lights and the vessels have a kind of relationship like the body and the soul that what the spheros really are is this revelation of, the, of God, but the way in which they function is with this kind of concrete, limited sense. So we say, going back to um, what we said before, right, that the spheros are not part of the created world, they're not part, and they're not God, right? So when we can describe the spheros concretely and distinctly, and we are, that is because of the vessels of the spheros. When we say, when we describe the spheres as being somehow a description of God, that's because of the light within the spheres. Okay? And so understanding that creates this bridge between God who is totally simple and transcendent and the created world which is limited and dynamic. And so what we would say is that when we sin, for example, that causes something to change in regards to the vessels of the spheros affecting how the light of God is revealed um, and thus God, and thus the light of God affects the world differently and therefore God is punishing us. 
because God has, so to speak, in some sense, been changed, been affected by our sins, but that change is never found within God himself, in the ain't self. And then conversely, when we're righteous. And that's kind of a basic overview of what we mean by spheros. So, are spheros attributes of God? No. Are spheros things that he created? No. But sometimes thinking them like attributes of God is a helpful way of thinking about them, right? Because I relate to you through your different attributes, right? And God presents himself through this, this, this setup of spheros. But they're not actually attributes of his being, right? He is, he's, he is not the spheros. And actually says this in the Zohar, after describing the spheros, says he is none of them. But he is, so to speak, within them. And at the same time, um, the spheros, because they're not really him, they have a, they're created for a purpose and they have a kind of structure of how they're supposed to work. Um, thinking of them as like tools uh, or something like that is not completely wrong. And so you, you end up having to go back and forth um, to develop a kind of a sensitivity to what spheres are. And again, not all the mystics come down on the exact same point of how those all things get reconciled. Okay, so if you take a description in the Torah of God, what, how are we describing Hashem as getting angry, as coming down, as having legs? And we're saying, well, in some sense, the light of the spheres reveals the Ein Sof, the true being of God. And that revelation is happening within these vessels. And so in as much as we're describing that revelation of God within the vessels, we can talk about God having legs and arms and flaring nostrils and getting angry. You still have to then understand, of course, that those terms also have to be um, understood in more refined ways, right? We don't think of God having a physical leg made out of flesh and blood. Okay. So that means once you have this idea, any, any school of thought which is really interested in how people relate to God in any kind of real way and how God is involved in the world in any kind of real way, you can see that spheres are going to be very attractive thing to either use or to borrow language from, which is why it shows up in Hasidus. Hasidus is not Kabbal. Hasidus is a very limited amount of the 10 spheres uh, um, is discussed because Hasidus is, is using that, those ideas and those language to talk about Hasidic ideas. But since Hasidic ideals entail the connection between God and the world, so spheres become relevant. Whereas Kabbalah proper really just is understanding that fully in all of its depth and all of its richness and all of its sophistication. Yeah. Um, does God only reveal his being through the spheros? Because I was thinking the Torah seems like something higher than that. Or is the Torah also coming through the spheros? So, so everything in Judaism from the Kabbalah point of view gets put within the structure of the spheros. So the Torah is... Um, the, 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 the Torah is um, rooted in the highest of the spheres. So it is a way to transmit the, the, the revelation of God in the highest of spheres to, to us down here on earth. I'm not going to go into more involved. Okay. But I can say that everything in the created world comes through the spheres. Yeah. Like it's level. Yeah. There's no... Okay. Now... Um, should I say the con- I'll say the controversial part now, and then we'll come back to this later. Now, remember what I said about mystics? 
Okay, and what are mystics trying to do? Real mystics. No, they're not trying to make sense of things. They're trying to have a godly experience, right? Now, what happens when you experience something? To you. What happens to you when you experience something? It changes you, right? There's some, some degree of, of blurring between you and what you're experiencing occurs. Right? For instance, just the fact that I'm seeing something, there's some way, some sense of it has entered my psyche, right? Mm-hmm. And then if you think about this, okay, so I'm going to do something. I'm going to reach for the picture. Well, what happened, if you think about it in a weird kind of way, is the picture just went through me. Because there's the picture. And I saw it, right? So some sense of the picture entered me through the, my eyes, right? And that became the basis of me reaching out to grab the picture, right? Because, you know, if I didn't see it, I wouldn't grab over here, right? So this kind of what, so there's this kind of like, almost like a thread going from the picture through my eyes, back out my hand, back to the picture, yeah? That makes sense? Or for instance, or I could say differently, through my eyes, out my mouth, when I speak to you about the picture. That makes sense? So the picture in some sense is passing, passing through me. So let's think about this. You have a mystic. And the mystic, let's say they're successful mystics. What have they experienced? God through the spheros. So God comes, God, there's the, 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 there's the Ein Sof and how the, the, the light of the spheros, which reveals the Ein Sof, which is coming through the vessels of the spheros. Again, I'm not explaining how that dynamic works, but that's what's happening. And then the mystic is experiencing that, right? And does that experience affect how they engage with the world? So then what has the mystic become? What has the mystic become? That's right. The mystic has become the extension of the spheres in this world. So the mystic literally becomes the channel through which God governs the world. (laughs) Yes, that's Jewish mysticism. And this is like, you know, it's not something we talk about publicly a lot, but that's what it says in the books. You can open them up and read it. And that's the goal of the mystic. If he's like taking his job seriously and he really wants to become a mystic, is that he, be, right? And this is alluded to when, the, when it speaks about the patriarchs and says they were the divine chariot. Like literally that was their being. Okay. Now, um, in case you wanted to become a mystic, I'll just point out that um, the desire for self-angradizement precludes you from experiencing the divine revelation of God through the spheros. So if you want to do this because you want to have that central role, you'll never get there. That's what you, so you have to somehow figure out how to desire something without wanting it for yourself. So, okay. Might need some personal refinement to be, be part of this process. Mm-hmm. Hence why Kabbalah was not widely taught to the masses. You know, with mass we talk about, you know, do mitzvahs and life will be good for you. And just leave it at that. Okay. Questions on what, more or less what spheros are. Then then the the revelation of God that comes through the spheres then continues in through them, so they become an extension of the spheres. Does that that means that does that mean that they can't you can't really control like you're chosen to be able to be that vessel of that? I'm not gonna answer any of those questions. It gets very messy and very complicated and um, so, for instance, have you ever heard the expression um, tzaddik yisoyed the righteous is the foundation of the world? Mm-hmm. 
Okay. So one of the spheres is Yisod. If you look on your Kabbalah chart, what you'll notice is that Yisod is like everything funnels into the sphere of Yisod. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what is that? If you were to read that statement Kabbalistically, what does that mean? The tzaddik, the righteous person, is the channel through which God runs the world. <laughs> that, that's what that actually means when the Kabbalists read. It doesn't mean... Now, the simple meaning is that the tzaddik is so righteous that his merit causes God to be benevolent to the world. But the mystical reading is that actually the, 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 the tzaddik in their mystical experience and how that then goes out through how they live their life and encounter the world becomes the channel through which God governs the world, enlivens the world. Um, there, there's a statement of our sages which, um, which that, that, that's in classical Kabbalah, what I just said. There's a statement of our sages where um, God says that the entire world is nourished b'shvil chanina b'ni. The word b'shvil in context literally means um, on behalf of or for the sake of. That in other words, chanina, one of the sages was so righteous that his merit was enough to sustain the entire world. But the word bishvil in Hebrew also can mean the pathway. So you could read it as the entire world is sustained through the pathway, through the conduit of Chanina, my son. And the, that's how the Baal Shem Tov read that on the base of the same idea, right? That the mystic in their mystical encounter, in their mystical experience, the, the, the revelation of God through the spheres actually comes into the world through the, through the actual person. And then we, then we can debate how direct is their contact with God, right? Because, you know, if, if, I'm see, if I'm experiencing something, right? But, for instance, if I just use a modern example, if I'm seeing a video of you, that's not the same thing as seeing you, right? We can all agree on that? Mm-hmm. What if I see a reflection in a mirror? Is that seeing you? So maybe the revelation of God that comes through the spheres is like the reflection of the Ein Sof rather than the Ein Sof itself. Okay, what if I'm seeing your reflection in a mirror through a colored glass, like a red piece of glass? Well, I mean, you see, like, you can start playing with this notion of how clear and how direct versus how unclear and how indirect this experience is, and the mystics discuss and debate these issues. What? Like that's still you. Meaning, it's it's not it's it's not it's on one level it's an important discussion because there are differences, but on the other level sometimes it becomes a semantic thing. Is it if I'm seeing your reflection through if I'm seeing your reflection in a mirror through a red piece of glass? I mean, in some sense I'm seeing you, in some sense I'm not seeing you. We can just debate exactly how to think about it. The label is less important, and so that's why you'll sometimes have mystical language seem very disturbing, almost idolatrous. Um, and that's just honest truth. Like, for instance, um, the, the, you've heard the Arizal before? Yeah. So the Arizal, what does the Aleph in Arizal stand for? It's an acronym. The Reish is Rabbi, and the Yud is Yitzchak, and then the Zal is Zichroinu Levracha, is mentioning should be for blessing. Mentioning should be for blessing. What does the Aleph stand for? So the Para version is Ashkenazi, because he was of Ashkenazi descent. <laughs> But it's weird in context, because you say, like, why would you say that? But whatever, you could say that. The other is um, divine. The godly Rebbe Yitzchok, may his mention be for blessing. 
So you, you, you get into these, these types of issues and types of things. And, you, and the Kabbalists will point out that there are statements in our sages, such as there's a verse in Till, many of you will know, where it says Moshe, and it says, Tfilos Moshe Isha Lakim, the prayer of Moshe, Isha Lakim. It was Isha Lakim, literal meaning the man of God. The Medrash says, and this is not Kabbalah, this is just classic rabbinic Medrash, that his upper half is God and his lower half is man. Now, do the mystics actually think that Moshe was like the embodiment of God, God forbid? No, but the notion is that in somehow he's a person living in the world. On the other hand, he is filled with this experience of the divine. And so you, you, these things get blurry and get messy. And, and when they're taken without that proper context, they can sound very idolatrous. It's one of the reasons why the Kabbalists were very hesitant about you know, sharing this with, with people who are not sophisticated in their understanding and refined in their character. Okay, good. What was the problem of the Sierra Satoru? One thing at a time. Okay. Um, that was not on the list of things I was going to talk about. Okay. Um, I, will, I will give you a, a brief non-answer. There was a man named the Arizal we just mentioned. The Arizal had, he revealed new aspects of Kabbalah. Um, and basically, the Arizal, to oversimplify tremendously, it says that between the Ein Sof, the being of God, and the Spheros is a lot more involved and complicated and messy than the previous Kabbalists have led us on to believe. And that, that totally reframes everything. So the Arizal, the notion of um, the vessels and the shattering, all that's the Arizal. In other words, that... that and, and, What's happened in Kabbalah is that once the Arizal said all these things, it's like, you know, that now, now everything has to be relearned again from when the framework of the Arizal. So many things that people will take for granted. They've heard about the world of tow, shattering of vessels, elevating of sparks. Um, if you've heard about the idea of the tzimtzum, the withdrawal of God from the world, all that stuff is the Arizal. And he just basically deals with the fact that to go from the Ein Sof to the Spheris is not as simple as the classic Kabbalists made it appear to be. Um, and that's based on revelations that he received from Eliyahu and Avi, mystical experiences that he had himself. Okay, so I'm not going to go into that. Um, but it does make all, everything I just said more involved, more richer. It helps explain things better, creates a new problems, as everything does. Okay, what was the next thing on our list of things to do about the spheres? Proper, translation. Proper translations. Okay, so there are 10 spheros that the Sefer Yitzhak says explicitly, 10 and not 9, and 10 and not 11. So I will name them. So if you like to make lists, now's the time. Keser, Chachma, Bina, Das, Chesed, Gevura, Tiferes, Netzach, Hod, Yisod, Malchus. You'll notice, of course, that there are 11, because in Judaism, if you ever get a number, that's not the number. Um, this is something the Kabbalists themselves debate and discuss. Um, the Arizal um, says that there are different ways of counting the spheres, whatever that means. And the rule is that if you're counting Kesser, you do not count Das. If you count Das, you do not count Kesser. Similar to the tw- idea of the 12 tribes, there's the tribe of Levi and then the tribe of Menashe and, Ef- and the tribe of Ephraim. Menashe and Ephraim, if we count both of them, we leave out Levi. 
because um, they're the priests, they don't get part of the land. Or if we count Levi, then we combine Menashe um, and Ephraim and just the tribe of Yosef. So always keep the number 12. I'm not going to go into why this is, but there are in fact 10 spheros, although there's only, there's 10 because you never count all 11. Um, whatever, whatever way in which you are looking at the spheros, then you are enumerating them, you're either seeing Kesser or you're seeing Das, but you're never seeing both at the same time for whatever reason. So you end up with 10. Okay, good. Translations, shall we? The translation for Kesser is Kesser. The translation for Chachma is Chachma. The translation for, for Bina is Bina, and so on and so forth. If you would like to be successful in your study of Kabbalah, um, or Kabbalah showing up anywhere and you want to be like really successful, you treat them as proper nouns. Why should you treat them as proper nouns? Hashem? They're not describing Hashem. They're not describing Hashem. They're the names. They're names of something. They're their own entities. They're their own entities. Defining it, we're limiting what it is. What what do we use proper nouns for? What's the difference between saying a city and London? Specific. It's specific. There is only one London, right? And when you want to acknowledge like the actual London, which is its own thing, of which there is only one of, right? Yeah. There's no point in translating it. It just has a name, right? The name, the, the name allows other people to know to what you are referring to, right? If I say London is a city, right? Well, there are other cities. So your knowledge of other cities now gives you some insight as to London, right? Mm-hmm. That makes sense? Now, when you move from language to language, right, it makes sense to find the translations of words so that the speakers of the other language understand what you mean, right? So if I told you London is a city, but you don't speak English, that doesn't help you, right? So I could say, like, I could say London who ear, right? And if you speak Hebrew, you know, or London is a shtat, if you speak Yiddish, right? Like, you got how this works? Mm -hmm. But it doesn't make sense when I move from language to language to translate the word London. Mm -hmm. Like, what would I translate it into? Now, it is true that because languages are spoken and each language has its own particular um, way of pronouncing things, that sometimes proper nouns get changed from language to language because of issues of pronunciation. That's how you go from, say, Yitzchak to Isaac. Isaac is not really a translation of Yitzchak. It's what happens when, when Greek speakers tried to say Yitzchak and then that moved through several European languages until it got to English, Right? That makes sense, yeah. right? So, and we all are familiar with this. You go to like, with you, um, you know, Rivka, Rebecca, right? Um, Shabbos, Sabbath, right? Makes sense. Yeah. Okay, so I could translate Keser as Keter if you're like more comfortable with that, but that's not really a translation, right? I'm just pronouncing it differently, mm-hmm. right? I'd also say Keter if you like want to. If you really insist on the the soft ths in all of your suffs, you know, like the Sabbath thing, but. It's not a translation. And that's the thing. Because it's important to acknowledge, like, you don't know what they are. There's only one sphere called Kesser, and it's the only one thing there is, and, like, it doesn't, there isn't anything like it, and no other language talks about it. So it just, it has a name. And treat it like an entity with a name. If you want to think about it as a place, you can think of it as a place. If you want to think of it as a person, you can think of it as a person. I don't really care. Right? But it is an individual entity, and there is no translation. Now, this is somewhat confusing. I'm moving on to part number three, which is that the spheres correlate with parts of the human psyche. 
And so chesed is also a human attribute, kindness. So there's a sphere called, called chesed. And then there's a human attribute called kindness in English, chesed in Hebrew, right? Now let's take a wild guess. Why do you think the sphere of chesed is called chesed? No. No. Why is the sphere of chesed called chesed? Remember, chesed is just the proper name of the sphere of chesed. So why is it called chesed? It just is. Do you know why the human attribute of kindness in Hebrew is called chesed? Because it has a likeness in some remote way to the sphere of chesed. This is the Kabbalistic view. In other words, God is like, hmm, I should make something that gives you some kind of sense of the sphere of chesed. Okay. And he created this human attribute called kindness. And he called it the same thing. So when you're reading Kabbalistic and for this matter Hasidic texts and you want to be successful in them, you have to be very sensitive as you read them. When you are talking about the actual spheres, treat them as pro- those words as proper nouns. When they are being used to describe other entities, then you should find as best as possible translations for the words. If you can, and you might not always be able to. Right? There may not be one word that captures the full meaning. Okay. Now, let's go through the list um, again. Each of these names um, is a word, and that word has meaning. And that tells us that those things that that word makes reference to somehow relate to understanding what differentiates one sphere from the next. Let me say that again. There's a notion of differentiating a sphere from the next. So do I know what a sphere is? Like, really? I don't really know what it is. I just know the role it plays, right? That bridge between the, the, the simple, unchanging God himself, the Ain Sof, and this finite, dynamic world. And I understand that the spheres both reveal God in one sense and are different than God in another sense. And so there's this notion of the lights in the vessels of the spheres. And I know that there's apparently 10 of them. I don't know why there's 10, but there's apparently 10 of them, right? Well, that there may be ways in which the spheres are different from each other in some sense, right? Presumably that difference has to do with the vessels of the spheres. So there is this notion of discerning the difference. Discerning difference is done by analogy, right? So I were to say that, um, or relationship is a better way for it, not just different, discerning the relationships between the spheres, both their differences, their interactions. So I would say something like this. The relationship of, say, Chachma to Bina is like that of a father to a mother. And, okay, well, now I have to figure out what about a father and a mother is similar to that of the relationship between Chachma and Bina, right, or something like that. Does that make sense? So now each of the names of the spheros, and they actually have more than one name. It turns out that in Kabbalah, almost every word is a name for the sphero. These are just their kind of, prop, cop, you know, the, the, the reverse name. Um, so you actually, in many Kabbalistic works, there's a section called Erech HaKinuyim, which means the, encyc- the, the encyclopedia of, of nicknames. And you, have, and you just have a list of words, common words in Hebrew, and they tell you what that word means in sphere language. 
Which, by the way, if you read the Chumash that way, it makes a lot more sense, if you know Kabbalah. All of a sudden, weird stories that don't make a lot of sense make a lot more sense if you just... Oh, it's talking about how this sphere relates to that sphere. That's really what it's talking about. But anyway, um, so we're just going to do with their, their most common names. So Keser. Keser means crown. Like the Hebrew word Keser means a crown. It also means wait, like waiting for the bus. It also means surround, like you're surrounded by your enemies. Okay? So what does that tell us about the sphere of Keser? It's in some sense like a crown and in some sense has this quality of waiting and in some sense it has some quality of surrounding. And okay, I, fine. And I guess that, that really differentiates it from all the other spheres in some kind of interesting way. And like, okay, fine. What do you mean is that separate from his attribute? I don't know what Kesser is, but I do know, say, for instance, this notion of waiting would apply to Kesser, wouldn't apply to the other spheres. I don't know what we mean by waiting, but it, it applies to one, doesn't apply to the other. In the way that we said, like, Kesser and kindness, like, kindness was the attribute related to Chesed. Right, right. So this notion that there's this notion of crowns, like, as, as like, yeah, so, so Kabbalah would say the fact that human beings have this social construct of crowns and the role they play in our society and how they're made of inanimate objects and the fact that they're placed on top of our heads, all of that is a modeling of something about the sphere of Kesser. Right? The, the, the fact that waiting is some kind of a fundamental part of existence rather than just like a technicality, which is a discussion for another time, is somehow related to giving us some sense of Kesser. Yeah, so all of these things. Okay. So then you have Chachma. And um, Chachma, um, the meaning of the word Chachma is wisdom. And that tells me that if I understand wisdom and how it relates to and is distinct from other things, that might give me some insight into how the sphere of Chachma is distinct from and relates to the other spheres. So just an example of something about wisdom. Um, what is the difference between a wise person and a non-wise person, wise people see things that not wise people do not see. That's why if you are not wise and you present your problem to a wise person, they are able to provide you with a solution. Okay, so there, right? So there's a there's an element of of perceiving the truth, right? That that occurs that. Occurs in the in the faculty of wisdom. Some people have more of it. Some people have less of it. Okay, so that's that's just one little thing. But and now the question, of course, is what aspects of the human faculty of wisdom are really analogous to and give us some insight into understanding the sphere of chachma's relationship and differentiation from the other spheres. Okay, then we go to bina. Bina is understanding. Okay, so just again one one um, point about a human faculty of understanding. Human understanding um, requires um, precise delineations. If you want to understand something, it's important that you get your definitions clear. What exactly the question was, how exactly it's being answered, right? Setting parameters very precisely is critical to understanding. When things are fuzzy, what happens to understanding? It's not clear. It's not clear, right? This is why spheres are hard to understand because it's hard to like pin them down on like very precise boundaries. Good? Okay. Um, das, 
is knowledge. Right? And there's a human faculty of knowledge. Right? Um, so again, I'll just give you one aspect of the human faculty of knowledge. So remember how I spoke about earlier about how when you experience something, the lines between you and it blur? There's blurring of the lines, and then there's a way in which that those lines, in some sense, disappear because there's kind of been created a fusion. For instance, there are things that you experience that stay with you forever and continue to affect you no matter what, right? So this quality of, attack, of, of, of attachment, of gluing with something is when we were speaking about knowledge, which is why, again, if you find, look in the, um, in the Chumash, you'll see that the first time this verb is used is referring to the union of Adam and Chava. So that's the idea of connection and attachment in a way that something, something that is not you and you fuse together. That's what it means to really know things. Um, men have an obligation to know the entire Torah. Do you know what that means? It means if you wake the man up at two o'clock in the morning and you ask him a question, he should be able to answer clearly what the answer to the question. That, that's what it means to know Torah. That's nice. Yeah. <laughs> so, other things we have to do also, but that's one of the things we have to do. Okay. Um, by the way, how clearly does the man have to know the Torah? Very clear. Are you allowed to marry your sister? No. That's, that's how clearly. That's the example you use. So everything in Torah is clearly as the knowledge that you're not allowed to marry your sister. That's, that's based on a verse because it says, The verse says, I said about my sister, that you, I said about wisdom, you are my sister. So the sages say that the wisdom, the, the, the clarity of the Torah has to be as clear as the knowledge that you can't marry your sister. And your person has to know it. Anyway, work cut out for me. Okay. Um, chesed. Chesed is kindness. <laughs> And so kindness is a, is a, and it's a human attribute and um, it's, it's, we would want to know what, in what senses does chesed as a human attribute provide us any kind of insight into the sphere of chesed and how it relates and is different from the other spheres. So one thing about chesed is that chesed um, chesed is something where you feel like you have what to share with others. In other words, you don't feel kindness towards someone when you feel like you're lacking in that thing, and, or you don't feel kindness when you feel like they're not lacking in that thing. When do you feel kind towards someone? When you have kindness. what they're lacking. Okay? Now, you might have something ethereal, like, like optimism, and the person might be very miserable, right? You don't always have to be material good, right? But kindness as a human attribute exists between you and other when you have and they do not. Okay? And in what way does it work? It's that what you have, you want them to have as well. You have money, you want them to have money. You have knowledge, you want them to have knowledge. You have optimism and zest for life, you want them to have optimism and zest for life. Yeah? Make sense? Okay. Um, Gvura Gvura is um, Related to a human Attribute Called Gvura 
And the there's Gvur is actually more interesting and complicated in certain senses than Chesed. So I'm just going to um, to um, kind of oversimplify it. When something is really important to you, you become very demanding regarding it. That's a human attribute. So if something is very precious to you, you become protective of it, right? If it's really important that something is accomplished, you become very driven towards it. And that's somehow help us give us insight into the sphere of Gvura by way of analogy. So, Gvura is... Gvura is... That's why I said there is not one good English word to translate Gvura as the human attribute. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very annoying. It's, no, it's, it's annoying. Like, if you learn, if you learn enough about Gvura, so, so Gvura has this element of withholding, but it's actually a little bit misleading because Gvura is not about withholding per se. Withholding per se is cruelty, which is not one of the spheres at all. It's not withholding per se. It's the demandingness or intensity that comes from deep value. That's really what it is. So like, for instance, um, the passion and romantic love is associated with Gevura. Okay. It's when you care deeply, you become very intense. That intensity can drive you forward. That intensity can cause you to be very cautious and have high standards, right? But that's that dynamic. Okay. Um, Tiferes. Um, Tiferes is, is also a hard one. Tiferes doesn't, doesn't, you know, now we get really weird because that now we're talking about something which is just doesn't seem like a human attribute at all. Tiferes is beauty. And the thing about beauty is that beauty has two opposite components. What are the two opposite components of a beauty? Mul- multiplicity and unity. Something that is just one thing is not beautiful. Something that is many things that clash is not beautiful. When many things come together, there's, in, in a way that there's a kind of unity to them, a synergy to them, then beauty um, is manifest there. So, um, if you are able to appreciate two sides of an argument and see how those two sides actually deepen an understanding of the issue, that is beautiful. It's beautiful in an intellectual sense, but it is beautiful. If you see how different colors and patterns interplay with each other to bring about something more transcendent, that is beautiful in a more sensual way, right? When your visual senses, right? So apparently there's something about that dynamic, about how different things that could and should in some sense be intention are actually in harmony and that brings out something transcendent, something whole. And that, that's something about what the sphere of Tiferes is. Notice that this is already not like a human emotion, right? Also crowns are, you know, things you wear on your head. They're not human experiences, right? Okay. Um, so because I'm just going through the names, right? Now, there may be, in fact, human qualities that have that quality to it. So they might correspond to that. Um, so now we have Netzach. Netzach means, um, Netzach means victory or lasting forever. Okay. 
And Netzach is very, very simple. Um, when things stop you, you, they don't. They don't stop you. In fact, the more things try to stop you, the more you keep pushing forward. Right? Why does something keep going on forever and ever and ever and ever? Because nothing can stop it. What does it mean to be victorious? It means regardless of how challenging the task is, you see it through to the end, right? Okay, so that something about, you know, being unstoppable is relating to netzach. Okay, what about hod? What does hod mean? It also means beauty, actually. Hasidus starts to play with it and give it other meanings, but I'm, because I, you asked me about spheres and I'm teaching. Hod means, means also means beauty. But it's a different kind of beauty. When you see something um, that is that is beautiful, that it is valuable, um, one of the things that it can elicit is rather than being enchanted and drawn by it, it actually can make you feel pushed back. Okay? Um, so the best way to think about this is think about the purpose of pageantry in royalty. What's the reason why the, the, the royal family has all of this pageantry around them? Which is very aesthetically pleasing and beautiful. Like, what's the purpose there? To separate them from the people? Not just to separate them from the people, but for the people no, to feel like, wow. And so there's this kind of, right? There's a kind of right, awe-evoking kind of thing, right? There's something that is, it, it's so, there's a kind of, the word they use when they sing is splendor. It's a beauty that evokes a sense of, of, of awe and withdrawal. And Hasidus does connect this to the Hebrew word haidoya, which means um, um, acknowledgement or submission. And I don't think it's unique to Hasidus, but that's already dealing more with plays on words, which also you find in Kabbalah. But the simple straightforward meaning is, is this. And there's actually discussions um, in, in, in Kabbalah and Hasidus about this, about this idea. Um, and then you have yisod. Yisod means foundation. Um, and a foundation is very simple. What happens if you take away the foundation? Everything falls apart. So apparently, what is the sphere of yisod? Everything depends on? Yeah. There we go. Okay. I don't really know why that sphere is so special. The other ones aren't like that, but apparently, okay. Um, and then finally, you have malchus. Malchus is kingship or sovereignty. So apparently, that quality of sovereignty of the king is somehow analogous to it helps us understand in some way what the sphere of Malchus is in its relation to the other spheres. And by the way, not just the other spheres, but you'll now notice to the created reality because we've now gotten to the lowest sphere. Mm-hmm. And by the way, there's some interesting discussion about does Kessler tell us anything not just about its relation to the other spheres, but about its relationship to the Ain Sof because it's the first of the spheres. Because remember, they're a bridge. Now, it is also true that all of these things are manifest in the human psyche. In other words, there is something in the human psyche that corresponds to every sphere, briefly. And I'm just going to mention them and not really describe them. But the human faculty of will corresponds to Kesser. Chachma, Bina, Das, Chesed, and Gvura, we already said those things, their literal meanings are human faculties, so we can skip those. 
Tiferes um, is often associated with a faculty of a sense of, um, what do you call it? A sense of wonder. When you're, you're just, something brings you to a sense of, this is so amazing. And so you're just not pushed back, but a kind of, you ever looked at the stars? Yeah. And you just like are enchanted, but also like just blown away by how big they are. Okay, so like that. Also compassion. Ferris also associated with compa- compassion. It's also associated with a sense of truth. Okay. Um, you can think about why all those things exhibit that quality. Um, Netzach is related to the human notion of perseverance and specifically strengthened the more obstacles you face. In other words, the more they tell me that I can't, the more I want to do it kind of thing. Okay. Hod... Um, is more associated with the notion of respect for or exuding the need for boundaries. So the sense that like you ex- you're exuding a sense that there's boundaries that someone else shouldn't cross or you sense that there's boundaries that you shouldn't be crossing with someone else. So you get things like respect, acknowledgement, thanks, gratitude go into that kind of category. Um, Yisod has to do with the connection between others. So the senses of, of loyalty, identification with others, um, the ability to connect deeply, um, both in, in dialogue, which is, a, which is a, you know, a unity of the minds, or in, a, or in a physical sense between husband and wife, is associated with the sphere of Yisod. Um, and then Malchus is associated with personal dignity, and speech. Now, does that mean that Malchus is Hashem's personal dignity? Mm-hmm. Does that mean Malchus is Hashem's speech? No. no. Now, will we say it's Hashem's speech? Sure, but then we have to say the same thing. We're just calling our thing speech because it has some vague similarity to some aspect of Malchus. That's um, one thing in Kabbalah is, and this is why the names are very important, is that they also understand these names to have meanings beyond just their simple translations. So, for instance, chesed is made up of two words, chas and then the letter dalad. So chas means um, to show compassion or grace. And dalas, the actual Hebrew letter is not dalad with a d at the end, it's with a saf at the end. And dalas means someone who lacks everything. So chas dalas really means to be gracious to those who have nothing. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Can you do all of them? I don't know all of them. Um, but um, so chachma has the um, can be um, has koach the word koach and the word man it this makes a big deal about it. Um, the um, word bina relates to the word building. We've spoken about this. Anyway, there's a lot. Like, so even the words, the shapes of the, 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 how they relate, all those things become important. All the things, creative things you can do with language become techniques in Kabbalah. And so it ends up being that these are very, very precise, that they are, these are the names of the things. Um, one last point. There is an alternative name for the sphere of chesed, which is gedula. Earlier Kabbalists used the term gedula. Um, it's actually in a verse describing Hashem. He says, to you is the gedula, the gevura, etc. Um, later, Kabbalists use the term chesed. In the Zohar, you find both. 
the reason I'll explain a little bit why I'm not going to go into it, just as a technical note. So I hope this was helpful. Yes. About Spheros. If you are interested in reading about Spheros more thoroughly, in the back of the bilingual Tanya, um, there is something called Mystical Concepts in Hasidicism. It's written in a bit of an academic register, but um, it's pretty good. And there's a lot more detail there about Spheros. Um, to be fair, it doesn't actually give all the context that I gave, but there's a lot more detail there. Um, and 